Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do minor parties stand a chance in U.S. elections today? Polls suggest no for most minor party candidates, but that's not stopping three men without major party backing from running in Connecticut's gubernatorial race. Today, Where We Live, Libertarian candidate Rod Hanscombe kicks off our latest candidate series before Election Day. That's November 6th. The Stanford resident believes Connecticut can operate leaner. We're going to hear his ideas, and we'll take your questions on air and on Facebook Live. The studio number is 860-275-7266. You can search Where We Live on Facebook and add your question right under the live video stream. And you can find us, as always, on Twitter at Where We Live. Rod Hanscom, welcome to the show. Lucy, thank you for having us this morning. Appreciate it. Uh, the question we have for all of our candidates is, you know, why are you interested in running for governor? <laughs> well, that's a great question. The, one of the first questions that comes up is, you know, what's your passion to do this? Because, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice, time, money, and otherwise that goes into this. Um, and what it really comes from is, you know, after graduating Stanford High School in the mid-1980s, I joined the U.S. military, was gone for six, uh, six years in the military. Then afterwards, relocated to Washington State, was living in Seattle for 22 years. But the last... Uh, year and a half, two years of the military, I was living in Texas, and then after that in Washington. Now, these are both right at the top of the list of the highest uh, highest growth states in the country. Seattle was the number one fastest growing uh, spot of the nation for many, many years. And as a private citizen, as a professional sales rep, also as a business owner, entrepreneur, you just see what's working in some parts of the country and what's clearly not working here in the state of Connecticut. So it's a passion to really, you know, get the message out there about, you know, what's working out there and what are the policies we should really be going after here in the state of Connecticut. When we look at uh, Washington, Seattle, they have Amazon going for them, right? They have Amazon, Starbucks, Microsoft, and then actually people overlook that Boeing is by far the biggest employer. Over 90,000 90, people work directly for them. So. So when you look at states like Washington and Texas, I went through your website, um, yeah. you look at uh, these states as examples of what Connecticut could be. Absolutely. So yeah. how would we get there? What are some of your ideas? Well, so Forbes magazine came out with it recently, and they listed the top 10 fastest growing cities in America. And nine of the ten, uh, top 10 fastest growing cities in America were in states with no income tax. Well, there's only nine states that don't have income tax. So the statistical probability that's just random, we calculate it's about one in one and a half million. So meaning it's not random, there's something to it that works. Now, when we dug into that further beyond what even Forbes magazine was talking about, you know, the two things we, I really noticed was one, all nine of those cities are actually in just five states. You know, it's Washington where I was living, Nevada, Texas once again, Tennessee, and then Florida. Um, and the Forbes magazine didn't talk about it, but when I looked at the taxation policies, all five states have the exact same taxation model. They have no income tax, but they have high sales tax. Usually their sales tax is anywhere from 8.5% to 9.5%. And if that's what's working in the rest of the states, I mean, clearly that's what, what, what could work here in the state of Connecticut and is some of the policies we'd be going after. But it's also having a vision of where we need to be. 
Are there challenges, though, in some of those states like Washington? I'm thinking about Seattle High, a homelessness rate uh, without these, uh, uh, these uh, taxes uh, that are able to come in and, and pay for social programs that could help the poor, help the homeless, get them off the streets? Sure. Well, Seattle has, I mean, it's an enormous percentage. I mean, there's an enormous amount of homeless people that are in Seattle for many, many reasons. And I've done homeless reach, uh, homeless outreach in downtown uh, before. And you actually start to find out, you know, to be perfectly honest, the vast majority of them were not from the city limits themselves because they've made it very comfortable with food kitchens. And, you know, you can put up a tent in people's ravines behind their house and et cetera, that a lot of them are coming from other parts of the country. So you have to, you know, there's an emotional reaction. Of course, you want to help people, but you also have to open your eyes and see what's clearly working or not. So. This is where we live. You're hearing Rod Hanscom. He's the libertarian candidate running in Connecticut's governor's race. You can join our conversation if you have a question for Rod, 860-275-7266. We're also on Facebook Live. Uh, Just uh, search for where we live. And uh, right underneath that live video stream, you can add your question there as well. I mentioned you're running um, as a libertarian. Uh, How challenging has it been? Because you're seen, again, as as a minor party and often the system in many communities across this country, uh, Really, the major party candidates have a big edge over someone like you. Oh, they do. The duopoly is entrenched. But, you know, we need to remember that, you know, in the state of Connecticut in 2014, 65 percent of voters who could have voted in the gubernatorial election otherwise stayed home. And I don't know if it's going to be radically higher than that right now. So there's a point at which, you know, there needs to be the other voices out there. You have to fight the powers that be and just the entrenched practices that are out there. They keep you out of the debates when you could have met all of the requirements they supposedly talk of. Um, So, you know, you have to start somewhere in, in just the year and half I've been involved with this party here in the state of Connecticut, we've grown, we've come an extremely long ways in a short period of time. There's still a lot further to go, but this, you know, there has to be a starting point. It's it's somewhere, and we know that there's a market for what we're doing here. There's a market for people to want to hear about being socially, uh, fiscally uh, conservative and responsible and socially liberal. Uh, So why come back uh, to Connecticut? Because you've been able to see um, what it's like to live in successful states and they don't have income tax. What is it about Connecticut that brought you here and why why do you want to be the governor uh, of the state? No, exactly. People ask that, you know, you were living in Texas and it was high growth in Seattle. I mean, just it's on the top of the economic categories for everywhere. It's a beautiful place, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the family is here. The root is here. Your blood flows through here. And Connecticut is a phenomenal place. I mean, in Stanford, where I'm right outside New York City. I mean, the number one world-class city in the world. We've got Boston on the other side of us. So just to be sandwiched in between those two great places, access to everything on the East Coast, historically what's happened here in Connecticut. I mean, we see, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to talk down Connecticut. We just, you know, here, the people were from here. This is the beloved home state. We've seen the potential. Also, if you study history, you see where this state has been in the past, uh, the leader for decades and decades, if not a century and a half almost. And, you know, these policies are just not putting us in the right direction. Uh, I guess the time when uh, you were growing up in, in Connecticut or were uh, uh, a teenager or young man, Correct, yeah. that was a time where uh, there was no income tax and the Correct. state was doing pretty well. But it was the leaders back then who uh, made some big mistakes. And that includes not funding, uh, you know, these uh, these pension funds enormous, and health care. And enormous. that's causing a huge problem now for and the people of the state of Connecticut. How do we get ourselves out of that mess? 
Well, every solving every problem is what's one step at a time. And you know, your question was very wide open because we've got pensions, mm-hmm. we've got health care. I mean, I mean, every one of these issues I could talk for a half hour easily just on details. But it's it all begins with where where's the first step. And then where are we going to with all of this? But also as a governor, you have to be able to sell this. You have to be able to sell and market this and convince people why you believe this, not just emotionally why you feel that way, but reasoning why. And everything that we talk about on our website with issues and everything else, it's based on study and facts and what's working in other places. And, you know, there's uh, firm reasons why we believe the things we believe in and the policies. So you, like the GOP candidate, Bob Stefanowski, believe that the income tax in the state of Connecticut should be repealed. Absolutely. But your difference is you would want to see a big hike in the sales tax. Correct. Because the thing when, you know, is Mr. Stefanowski and also Mayor Boughton from Danbury was campaigning on that. They said, hey, in eight years from now, we'll be able to repeal it. Well, that's making wild assumptions that you're still going to have power in four years or eight years from now. So to me, it kind of seems more of like, well, that's more of a dream. Uh, but, you know, we need major uh, budget cuts here in the state of Connecticut. We do not have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem in this state. Uh, and it also has to do with just efficiencies. But at the same time, you know, I, I mentioned those, there's no free lunch. It's not going to be easy. And we have to have a higher sales tax to make up for a chunk of the revenue that we're going to lose with no income tax. So how would you, where would you cut in the state of Connecticut? Because we hear so often when it comes to um, if you want to uh, trim departments and get rid of actual state employees, that's uh, easier said than done because of labor agreements that yeah. lock the state in until about 2022. 20, uh, and again, when we go back to the income tax uh, a part of this, the fact that it makes up more than half of the general fund. I mean, how are you going to, uh, you know, pay for the things that we need, such as, you know, when we think about education and social services, not just uh, looking at the capital and where you can trim in terms of departments. Well, and a lot of it, you know, cutting also has to do with efficiency. So every time I look at what the cost is here in Connecticut for the government to do business, for whatever reason, and when we know what the reasons are, it always seems to be 80% more expensive than where, what it is in other parts of the uh, other parts of the country. For instance, you talk about transportation. I mean, the average cost to repave one lane of highway, one mile in the United States is 200 to $225,000. Yet for some reason in Connecticut, it's over half a million. The average cost to educate kids K through 12 across the nation is $10,500 per year. That's right on Ballotpedia study. I'm just not throwing numbers out there. But yet in Connecticut, they've got it coming in at almost $19,000 per year. So why does everything have to be 80% more efficient? Just throwing more money at things and taxing people higher and higher is not the answer. And we're seeing that. We were 49 out of 50 last year for economic growth in the nation, second only to Louisiana, number one for per capita people leaving the state. And the biggest economic indicator for me personally out there, I always look at home values. So I came from the market that was number one in the nation for the last five years for home appreciation. Seattle homes have gone up 60%. The U.S. average is 30%. Connecticut is dead last at number 50 for the last five and the last 10 years for home appreciation. Uh, And, you know, these problems just keep snowballing. We don't need more revenues. We need efficient, small government. This is where we live. Rod Hanscom is running on the libertarian line. Uh, 
for uh, the Connecticut governor's race. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. When you think about uh, the fact that unaffiliated uh, uh, people, voters, uh, are the largest bloc in the state of Connecticut. Yes. Who exactly are you appealing to as a libertarian? You know, libertarian, I, it's not, people think, oh, you're just going to take some votes from the Republicans because, you know, you're the true fiscal conservatives. They talk a good game. But, you know, I, I think it really is issue by issue. I think we have appeal across the range because, once again, it's being fiscally conservative, but also socially liberal. And socially liberal means as long as you're not infringing upon the rights of others, the government should not be in the business of telling you how to live your life or how to run your business. And it's what the country was founded on. It was founded on liberty. People were coming from monarchies and dictatorships and wanted to live free, freely. And uh, once again, that's the basis of what uh, libertarianism is really all about. Uh, we got a tweet from uh, David uh, who writes, uh, why should black and Latinx voters support libertarians such as yourself um, who say government shouldn't intervene when it comes to discrimination issues within private businesses? How do you respond? Well, that, that's, a, that's a very good question and I, I get that often. And to be perfectly honest for me personally, I think it's time to start moving beyond – uh, what are we going to do specifically for African-American groups or what are we going to do specifically for Hispanic groups? I mean, in my sales career, you know, I go to Greenwich and I'll go to Westport and there's African-Americans who are extremely wealthy uh, that have done extremely well uh, by all reports, anywhere from 65 to 75 percent are living somewhere in the middle class. So these type of questions where what are you going to do specifically for African-Americans or specifically for Hispanics? To be quite honest, I don't answer those questions because I don't really like grouping everybody uh, together. I think it minimalizes people and uh, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why voter turnout is so incredibly low among certain groups. They just don't feel like people are treating them as equals or talking to them the same. So, But hasn't it historically policies shown uh, whether it's when you look at um, housing policies in this country and um, how uh, people who of color have been disenfranchised uh, or kept to live in poor neighborhoods? I mean, those issues are issues that we might see in Hartford or Bridgeport or other cities. I mean, shouldn't you try to, how would we, how would you address those but concerns? But when you say that they're forced to live, I mean, how, how is somebody forced to live in Hartford or Bridgeport? So if you look so. at policies like redlining that don't allow people to get mortgages and to live in better parts of communities, or the fact that um, they haven't been able to get out of a certain neighborhood where schools, the school quality is poor, these are issues that um, residents in cities, um, you know, want to see see uh, politicians address. And I'm just curious when you say that you don't want to talk about that. Um, you know, how do you how would you reach a voter in Hartford or Bridgeport or Middletown or Meriden? Because when it comes to policies, it's all about having equal access, of course. I mean, it's all about having equal access and opportunities. The government can create opportunities. And if we have the right business policies, we have the right regulations, have an opportunity changes the game for everybody. Now, at the same time, I will include also the talk is, you know, when I first moved back to Connecticut, I was in the sales and the heating and air conditioning business where I spent tons of time in Bridgeport, plenty of time in New Haven. And over and over again, when I was doing finance applications for people that were doing improvements, African-Americans or Hispanics, I mean, I would see these incomes like, oh, you're both school teachers in New York City and you live in Bridgeport. You don't have to live in Bridgeport. You, could, you can afford to live in Fairfield. I know you can. I can see what the incomes are. But I also think there's something culturally or historically where they just – you know, for many reasons, probably just would prefer to live in those cities, but they want to see the cities in better shape, of course. So, 
This is where we live. You're going to have the opportunity to ask Rod Hanscom a question. That's because he's running as a libertarian uh, to become Connecticut's next governor. Let me give you that number, 860-275-7266. Donna's calling from Southbury. Donna, what's your question? I actually have a comment. To me, it makes more sense to leave the income tax alone and reduce the sales tax because reducing the income tax is only going to help the rich, not the middle class, not the lower class. And um, I would love to hear what he thinks about that. And I think his last comment was extremely prejudiced. Thank you, Donna, for your question. So first, you know, she was saying that it would make more sense to leave the income tax alone and think about reducing the sales tax. What's your, what are your thoughts? Well, as far as people say, well, uh, sales tax is a regressive tax. Well, what, what tax after a while isn't regressive to begin with? So um, with the sales tax, I mean, food would not be taxed. Prescription medications would not be taxed. Your apartment is not taxed. We could do clothing items, for instance, 30 and $40 and under and leave the sales tax off of those. Um, so uh, as far as the basic necessities in life, sure, we'll leave the sales tax off all of those. Uh, Alex is calling from Glastonbury. Alex, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask your guest, Lucy, um, can he explain what's been happening in Kansas where Sam Brownback and the Republicans went on a tax-cutting frenzy and basically brought the whole state to, uh, you know, the brink of, of bankruptcy um, to the point where uh, even the Republicans in the state finally had to put a break on, on uh, uh, all of that and to make sure that they saved uh, essential services. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's very easy to, to be a demagogue and to talk about how we're all going to cut the income tax, but uh, I'm not convinced that uh, any of these libertarians or Republicans really come up with a sound answer for, for how we're going to maintain our, our strong uh, tax base in the state. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, here on Where We Live. Uh, Rod, did you want to address uh, Alex's point? No, because that's been brought up several times before, and I've looked into it. And, the, you know, the state of Kansas just did huge tax cuts across the board, uh, but they also didn't cut spending. They just thought that all these cuts were going to make the economy grow enough to offset that. And that is not part of our plan. Our plan is, yes, we're going to have an increase in the sales tax, and yes, we're going to have big cuts in spending, and we're going to be much more efficient. But there's a, you know, there's a, a big vision to what you have to do to get there. You can't just cut taxes and not touch revenue uh, in order to get the growth. And I've addressed that. Uh, Dan is calling from Andover. Dan, what's your question for Rod Hanscom? Yeah, hi. I'm wondering what you think about small town home rule in Connecticut. Uh, those cities that you mentioned, none of those states have any sort of municipal uh, uh, system where there's a bunch of little tiny fiefdoms like we have in Connecticut. And I really believe that that's uh, holding holding uh, the Economies Act in Connecticut is also driving up the cost of all those services like education that you mentioned. No, and, and the question ties into uh, you know regionalization of services, and it, and everything that comes and the passion that comes from this is is that the government really should have, and when I talk about retailers, retailers, it should have an Amazon.com mentality, and. You know, knowing people that have worked there before, I mean, their mentality is they scratch and claw for every fraction of a penny in savings that's out there to be as efficient as possible, and then the growth just happens. So we need to have that same mentality here in the state. And uh, regionalization has to do with, and the towns would only benefit 
benefited from it enormously. You see what our property taxes are here in this state compared to the other states because too much money gets pumped into municipalities and it's not efficient. With regionalization, why do you need you know numerous different fire departments or school districts or school boards, et cetera? There's you know, exponential savings to be had all, acro- all across the board, and that's what we're going for. From the top, for the biggest savings all the way to the smallest savings, we want to be looking after it, uh, looking at it and going after it. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we kick off our latest candidate uh, interview series, starting with Libertarian candidate Rod Hanscom, who's in studio with me. You can ask a question of Rod. Uh, he's one of five candidates running for in the governor's race here in the state of Connecticut. That number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live. Uh, add your question below the video stream and also on Twitter at Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, you're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Gubernatorial candidate Rod Hanscom is with us today. He's a libertarian running against four other candidates in the Connecticut governor's race. Now, ctnewsjunkie.com reported this is the first time in 20 years the Libertarian Party is on the state ballot. And you can ask a question of Rod. Here's the number, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook today, also at Where We Live. Uh, Rod, where do you stand on tolls? Oh, so tolls, I'm against tolls 100 um, percent. The thing, the, the hardest thing in politics and policies, not just for politicians, but also as citizens, is to dial down the emotion and look at the actual facts and what they're proposing. So the tolls in the state of Connecticut, all of these proposals have been for 20 cents a mile. They have not been for four cents a mile like Massachusetts has. And I think a lot of times people who favor polls, it's like, well, hey, when I drive through Massachusetts or Maine, I got to pay tolls in New Hampshire. If I go to New York or New Jersey, I got to pay tolls. Why aren't they paying? Like, Well, the truth is, is that 70 percent of the money would be paid by residents right here in the state of Connecticut. And also, I already mentioned about how inefficient the Department of Transportation has been on spending to begin with. And also, it's the cost. Uh, you know, so if you if you're living in an economic depressed part of the state such as Norwich and you drive to New Haven for work every day, well, 20 cents a mile, that's $475 a month you're going to be paying the state of Connecticut for the uh, driving on the highway. And if you have a spouse that works in New London and then you drive around on the weekends, I mean, there's some families could be up to $700 a month. And when it comes down to a toll is just one more tax. We have an extremely small land mass here in Connecticut. You could fit 630 Connecticut's roughly inside the United States. Um, we're fully developed. There's not a whole lot of new highways we need to build. We just have to repave what we already have. We have the sixth highest gas tax in the nation. We don't need more revenue. And toll is just one more tax, one more incentive to leave the state of Connecticut. Rod, do you feel safe when you're driving across bridges here in the state of Connecticut? 100%. Uh, because we hear from engineers who will give ratings of D and below uh, to infrastructure. We know the state transportation fund uh, is almost broke. I mean, how do we pay for um, investing in our infrastructure if it's failing? Well, at the same time, you know, I, I know somebody who specifically works inside the Department of Transportation, and I've known them for a long time, and they're quite the go-getter out there. And they just bemoan the managers that have managers that aren't doing much of anything, the nonstop, never-ending environmental studies that go on, the inefficiencies that go on. I mean, there's a reason why the cost to repave highways in Connecticut is double what it is somewhere else. So, no, we do not need to concentrate on more revenue and more taxation. We need efficiency, and that's that's when I talk about having an Amazon.com mentality and not a Sears mentality or a Kmart mentality where we're looking in the rearview mirror 
you know, thinking about how good it was 40 years ago. No, we need to be as efficient as possible because if we're not as efficient as possible, Florida, Tennessee, Texas, other states will be. And that's where our residents are going to keep going. Uh, we got a tweet from Magdalena uh, who writes, I understand wanting small government, but what does that mean for job cuts from the state? If so, where will those people find jobs? The state's the number one employer. Increasing unemployment will dampen our economy. And she wants to know uh, how you would respond to that. So the state of Connecticut employs 41,000 people as of right now. I mean, if it was run as the most ex- uh, extremely efficient business out there, I would dare to guess it would probably be about half as much. Uh, now, so 41,000 sounds like a lot of jobs, but there's 1.5 million private sector jobs in the state of Connecticut. There's over 4 million private sector jobs in New York City alone, with almost half the state is commutable to New York City. So, I mean, the amount of people the state employs is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction compared to what private industry does. And the more that a government wastes, the more it just becomes a drag on the free market and creating more private sector jobs. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, the number 860-275-7266. Nicholas is calling from West Hartford. Nicholas, what's your question? Hi. So the candidate just brought up Amazon as a model for uh, cutting down inefficiencies, but they have a pretty atrocious record when it comes to the quality of life of their employees, and they're breaking unions and uh, forcing people to work some pretty draconian man hours. So in a state that ranks, you know, quality of life as one of the attractants, how do you reconcile that? Well, I mean, I can talk from personal experience, you know, living in Seattle for a long time uh, through clubs I was part of. You know, I have a lot of friends that are work at Amazon. There's 50,000 employees in downtown Seattle work for Amazon. The average salary is $200,000 per year. So uh, and, you know, the whole time there, yes, they work a lot of hours, but I never heard anybody call it draconian or, you know, they're just it's just a sweatshop or any of those people that work specifically in there are very passionate about what they do. And yes, at times they get burnt out and they'll move on to consulting or other jobs out there. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it, the, the model is efficiency. You know, they look for every fraction of a penny of savings that's out there. And there's a compounding effect about that that just – and you see it that you just become stronger and better um, fiscally and otherwise. And there's no reason a government can't have that same type of mentality, efficiency. Uh, Brenda is calling from Danbury. Brenda, go ahead with your question. Um, Hi. I was wondering if you knew the difference between Hispanic and Latinx uh, individuals and how you um, hope to get our vote if you're not willing to discuss our concerns. Is there a specific question you have? Yes, that that was two questions. So what do you know the difference between Hispanic and Latinx individuals? I mean, that was, I'm not even going to bother answering. This is, you know, ridiculous. So, uh, but she's also asking how you would um, try to uh, cater to voters from the Hispanic and Latinx communities. Could, would you answer that? Uh, once again, it just all comes to opportunity. A government is about creating opportunity specifically, and that's what we concentrate on. So, and when she mentions Latinx, so these are uh, people of Latin American origin or descent. Uh, it's a gender neutral term, and so um, she again. Oh, that's she, new to me. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Brenda, thank you uh, for your call. Um, So I wanted to go back. You mentioned you're not uh, for tolls, but what about uh, legalizing marijuana? Our neighbor to the north, uh, Massachusetts, has done that. So libertarians, they love to ask if you're going to support legalization of marijuana. Uh, And by principle, I would, because with principle, you know, I believe that, you know, uh, as long as you're not infringing upon the rights of others, once again, the government should not be in the business of telling you how to live your life. And that uh, goes with marijuana. Now, I would not 
enthusiastically support the legislation, but if it came to the desk, I would sign it um, by principle. Uh, but also I can add by having lived in Washington, which legalized at the same time that Colorado did, you have to be careful and make sure you have the rules before you put the law into effect. So meaning when I was driving through downtown Seattle and then five of the nine major billboards through downtown are for pot stores. And then when a pot store opens up in your neighborhood, it feels a little different. Or when you're reading through the entertainment magazine on the weekend and 35% of the ads are for pot stores, you know, that's where people were a little less enthusiastic afterwards. So yes, we would uh, support the legalization, but at the same time, there needs to be bigger conversations about the rules. When When it comes to supporting legalization, how would you tax recreational marijuana? I mean, of course, it would have to get taxed. I haven't thought about specific percentages because, to be quite honest, it's a drop in the bucket. It would be a drop in the bucket for revenue here in this state. It's not, it's not the answer to economic growth here in this state. Yeah. And so when you think about the answer to economic growth, you see it in uh, getting rid of the income tax in the state of Connecticut. You think that would encourage who more people to come back? Entrepreneurs. You know, entrepreneurs, you know, if you look at like why does Texas and why does Washington and why does certain places have so many of the entrepreneurs who are the next leaders going there? Well, that, it's a big driving factor is low business regulation, low taxation, because the low, less taxes you're paying, the quicker you can grow your company. Now, going beyond that, as a governor, you for the business and the entrepreneurs, you're never going to outthink a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos or the top business people out there. You just have to create an environment where the new ones will want to come to you. Beyond that, where I see the enormous opportunity that we could do legislatively has to do with health care. The cost of health care in this nation has skyrocketed beyond reason. Um, even solidly middle class people are having trouble paying these premiums, which are just going out of control. So, if one state was to take on health care and have a different track outside the government and standard insurance policies, uh, I see that as an enormous potential we could have out there for job growth here in the state. So we're not going to concentrate on casinos and marijuana. How about we con- concentrate on the big ball out there, which is health care? It's ironic you mentioned insurance because we are the insurance capital of the world. Absolutely. Right? Uh-huh. Uh, Roger, you can uh, join the conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Roger from Stanford. Go ahead, Roger. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. You've used statistics averages in a couple cases uh, so far during this interview. You mentioned uh, the average state spending on education is significantly lower, significantly lower than Connecticut. And you just a few minutes ago mentioned that the average Amazon salary in Seattle was $200,000. But you haven't acknowledged that there are wide disparities. There, there the, the standard deviation away from that average is pretty significant. And I'd like to know what you're trying to cover up, because, in fact, I don't think anyone in Connecticut wants to have an education system the quality that you have in Alabama or Mississippi. And I don't think, uh, uh, you know, the the average Amazon employee, if you excluded the top 5% who make enormous uh, incomes, would find uh, the, the city quite as attractive. Can you speak to that, please? Oh, sure. So as far as the Amazon example, when we did come up with the the average income there, we did take the, the top tier vice presidents and presidents out of that. So um, as far as, of course, nobody wants to have education that's the worst in the nation. I mean, we have a fantastic education system here in the state. But my question becomes is like when my best friend in Stanford sends his kids to parochial school, they do a fantastic job. And another friend sends his, uh, doesn't even send his kids to school, they homeschool. Well, the homeschoolers are doing it for zero taxpayer cost. Uh, the 
you know, once again, my friend sending them to parochial school, the same, but the parochial school, they get a fantastic education and he pays $6,500 a year. Well, why does it have to cost $19,000 in a public school when the when the parochial schools can do it for 6500 So uh, throwing more money at it is not the answer once again, and it's about efficiencies. So. But of course, we want to have top education. It's key to economic growth, and it's key to attracting more people here to the state. When you talk about uh, education, uh, you mentioned uh, someone sending their child to parochial school or homeschooling. Uh, where do you, when you think about the dollars uh, that uh, that's spent per child, do you uh, support this idea of those dollars going to uh, the, the parent that's sending their kid to private school? Absolutely, because part of libertarianism is freedom and freedom is, is of choice. And one of the choices is, is ultimately the parent is the best decider of what is the best school for their child to go to. So uh, is I we fully support school vouchers, uh, you know, until there's some competition costs only go up like they do in public schools. There needs to be more competition. So if somebody was homeschooling or decided to send their kids to private school, part of that money, maybe in the three to $6,000 range, should be able to be controlled by the parents to, see the, uh, to send their kids to the school they see uh, best fit for them. What impact would that have on public school districts? Uh, they'd, have to be more, they'd have to be more efficient, yeah. Is it, is it just efficiency, though, when we think about uh, some of the, uh, you know, we've done uh, shows uh, about, uh, you know, some of the uh, challenges in certain neighborhoods, some of the, you know, each one of us has uh, individual challenges that can be in our families. Sure. That also um, comes out uh, when uh, children go to school and teachers need the right resources to deal with a child that has seen toxic stress in their life. It's not just about efficiencies. Sure. How do you support those children, those teachers, those educators? Well, at the same time, if more people were leaving the public school system and going the private sector or homeschooling, and that's the wave that's happening, there would be that there would be that many more resources for those kids that were in need. Because once again, we wouldn't be handing over the entire or 17,000 that we're paying now to the parent, it would be more in the more reasonable range of three to 6,000. So it's better for the school districts, better for property taxpayers, and it's just better for the parents because once again, they are in control of what's best for their child. Uh, we, we're going to be going to break pretty soon, but I want to fit in a couple more listener calls here on Where We Live as we bring you the Libertarian candidate, Rod Hanscom, the number 860-275-7266. Ben's calling from Watertown. Ben, go ahead. Hi, I was wondering your position on the Second Amendment rights, as well as the bill that was passed in Connecticut in 2013, the assault weapons ban, and would you support an effort to repeal it? Thank you. Yeah, so as libertarians, we are very pro-Second Amendment, and it's not just the Second Amendment, but it's also in the Connecticut state constitution. You know, it says, you know, every every citizen has the right to bear arms in defense of himself and the state. And uh, once again, we are about liberties, and uh, the Second Amendment is one of those liberties. Uh, when we look at uh, studies that have uh, since uh, the state of Connecticut passed these stricter gun laws, the homicide rate has gone down. I mean, when you look at those kinds of statistics, why repeal those laws? Well, the crime rates have been going down for many reasons across the country. So uh, the, the, the fact is, is that 97 percent of crimes committed by criminals, the criminals are not buying their guns through legal means. They're getting, they don't want the serial numbers traced, as, of course, if something happens if a crime is committed. And uh, so for those reasons, no, the, these extra gun laws only for the most part are putting more uh, restrictions on the law-abiding citizens, not on the ones who have easy access to guns to begin with. Uh, Marcel is calling from New Britain here on Where We Live. Uh, Marcel, go ahead with your question. Hi. So, uh, I was listening to your uh, questioning, and, and I, I do like a lot of your answers about uh, being fiscally conservative, which is 
clearly the the most pertinent issue on the ballot during this year's gubernatorial election. Uh, What I was concerned about was the fact that you don't seem to have any concern for the people in most need. And and the question that I have is, when you say that that 70% of people in Bridgeport uh, have the means to move out and they don't, why do you think that's the case? And what can we do to help people in inner cities have more opportunities. So I didn't say 70% of the people uh, within the city limits of Bridgeport don't have the ability to move out. I was saying that roughly 65 to 75% of African Americans in the nation are somewhere in the middle class, is what I said. Now, yes, there's a disproportionate amount of uh, uh, poor people in Bridgeport. I work in Bridgeport, uh, so I understand that very well. So, But when it comes to it, it's not about not being charitable. You know, we very much want to promote charity. I myself, you know, I'll share a little bit. I'm Christian myself. I believe in tithing. I've been practicing tithing for a long, long time, not just because it's good to help others, but also it's good for me personally, uh, spiritually and otherwise. It's just the right thing to do. The, the fact is, is that a government is not an efficient charity. You know, the charities, for instance, like World Vision that uh, does great work uh, internationally, when they're audited, 89 to 91 percent of the money they bring in goes directly to the people in need. Well, if we did really honest studies about government charities and how efficient they are, they wouldn't even be in the neighborhood of that efficient. So that's what the, the uh, once again, the goal is. It's not to be uncharitable and not help people, but it's to have efficient systems and spend the money wisely, your money wisely. Uh, Rod Hanscom, again, is libertarian candidate. Uh, he's running uh, to uh, against four other candidates in the Connecticut governor's race. We're going to have to leave it there, but I'm really happy that you're able to come in our studio so our listeners and others can learn more about you as a candidate, Rod. Thanks for your time today. Lucy, thank you so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, our political analysts are going to join us uh, to get their take on Mr. Hanscom's comments and his campaign. And you can join us, too. The number 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Oz Grebel has been a longtime leader in the greater Hartford business community. Now he's running for governor. On the next Where We Live, we're going to sit down with him, the unaffiliated candidate. And Grebel is currently polling around 11 percent statewide. Does he really have a shot for Connecticut's top office? You can join us on air tomorrow and also on Facebook Live. Now, I wanted to uh, thank uh, our guests who've uh, joined uh, this conversation. Uh, Rod Hanscom was with us for the first part of the show. Now I want to welcome Dr. Bilal Siku, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hillier College at the University of Hartford. Bilal, welcome back. Good morning. And we have a new voice uh, joining us in studio, Elizabeth Kynes, Executive Vice President at Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with you, uh, Bilal. Um, Again, uh, Broad is a libertarian candidate. I mentioned at the top of the B, this is the first time the Libertarian Party is going to be on the statewide ballot in 20 years. Uh, So tell us what you think of Rod as a candidate for governor. Right. Uh, Obviously, so many places to start. That was quite an interesting um, interview. Um, Very interesting moments from the discussion about the getting rid of the income tax to uh, creating greater efficiencies in government and also the sort of tone and, uh, and approach he took towards issues of race and class. So 
Um, I think, you know, clearly he's got a long, this is a long shot candidacy. He really, um, he is uh, in the polls. Very few people know who he is. And so he's got a, you know, quite a mountain to climb to try to get elected to office. And so um, from that standpoint, um, this this interview, we'll, we'll, it, we'll see in terms of what it actually does, whether it will move the barometer at, at all. But I think, you know, some interesting sort of ideas, some things that many residents may agree with in terms of doing away with the income tax or at least reducing it dramatically. But there are lots of question marks about what that actually means to do that. And, you know, his comment about, just as an example, that there are 41,000, you know, public employees and that a more efficient system would be cutting that workforce in half, that would be devastating to state government and state government services. And so um, that's not quite a prime time kind of answer to a very important kind of question. Elizabeth Kynes. So he used the word efficiency quite a lot. I would love to know what does that look like? So specifically, he talked about the Department of Transportation and those high administrative costs. You know, first, why? I'd love to know line item by line item, you know, why? But I would love to know when it comes to education, Department of Transportation, what does it look like to be efficient? So that was one thing I was hoping for and didn't quite get that answer. I mean, that's the kind of term that's thrown around quite a bit. It sounds good to hear people talk about making government much more efficient. But what he's really saying is that he wants to drastically reduce um, state, you know, the state government budget, which means, you know, many programs that uh, many Connecticut residents rely upon would have to be slashed and not just by a little bit, but by quite a bit if you're willing to get rid of roughly about half of the, you know, the budget that the state, you know, is able to use coming from the income tax. To be fair, uh, of all, all the candidates that are running for governor, uh, not many of them are offering up specifics. As you yeah. mentioned, Elizabeth, right. these line by line, like where are you going to cut? And what is possible given the labor contracts and agreements uh, that the state of Connecticut is in? Um, and you mentioned uh, programs, Bilal. Uh, right. The last, uh, we didn't have a lot of time at the end of the sh- uh, segment with Rod where he's talking about charity needing uh to, be, to fill that need versus right. government. And I'm just wondering, what's your take on that when we think about the safety net programs in the state of Connecticut yeah. that have, you know, each uh, year, even under the Malloy right. administration, you've seen these uh, nonprofits and other uh, community organizations seeing their budgets getting smaller and smaller. They're, the need is still there, right. but they don't, they're not able to uh, be able to help them. I mean, obviously, part of the reason why government does a lot of these things is because charities and private organizations have simply not been able to deal with the magnitude of the kind of need. But it's also been an interesting sort of partnership between state and private or, or public nonprofits working together. And, and that's the part about the, the funding that comes from the state to support these agencies. Many of them are on shoestring budgets and finding it very difficult to provide the services that they need. And of course, the quality of the services that people receive can be harmed. And so when you come in and you're proposing to slash the budget and shift that responsibility to those organizations, they're already overburdened, many of them, and financially struggling. So I'm not quite sure how they pick that up without that state support. Elizabeth, uh, from the interview, is there um, any uh, point that Rod made that would make him desirable to the unaffiliated voters in the state of Connecticut, again, the largest block in the state? 
I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because um, we were talking earlier that Connecticut is, you know, one of six states where independents and unaffiliates outnumber Democrats and Republicans. And um, one thing that he said in the interview that I, I thought really resonated with me, you know, he talked about the point that you've really got to tackle spending reform before you can really tackle tax reform. And he mentioned Kansas, that that state always comes up with this, as it should. We've learned a very important lesson um, from Kansas. And I was happy to hear that he talked about that. Again, I'd love to know a little bit more about what does that look like for a state government to be innovative and to engage these private charities and in, in helping um, the people, especially those who live on the margins of our society. So I'd love to know just a little more detail about that. I wanted to circle back. There was a caller who wanted to know if Rod knew the difference between Latinx uh, versus Hispanic right. and, and what he will be doing uh, to attract them to vote for him. When he answered, I mean, he didn't answer the question, but when you hear his response, Bilal, will voters of color uh, think of him as that, they, that Rod doesn't care about us and our needs and concerns? Well, well, I certainly think there are probably people of color who are attracted to libertarian ideas. I think as a spokesperson for libertarian ideas and a spokesperson who will be someone who promotes building a libertarian movement in the state that will be a multiracial, multi-ethnic um, sort of movement, he's a poor example of someone who would be able to organize that. I think at one moment he said, I'm not going to answer that question and was quite um, dismissive of that. And I think when you're trying to talk to communities of color and, to, and trying to build a relationship with people in communities of color, um, he did everything wrong rather than anything right in, in doing that. Elizabeth, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I guess I would echo that in a sense that libertarians are for liberty and freedom. And for you know the individual who called in, um, I was excited to hear an answer that resonated with that. Um, you know, right now we've got a really interesting case coming out of the Hartford School District where people are literally fighting to restore the constitutional rights of black and Hispanic students. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is a really great time to have this discussion. And so I was hoping for a little bit more yeah. there. And, 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 and to be quite honest, I mean, I think there are are many people in communities of color who like the idea of charter schools, who like the idea of giving, being having, having the opportunity for their kids to attend um, parochial schools and to have state um, funding follow their kids into those situations, um, and to hear a candidate who believes that that's the way to go, um, yet be dismissive of the idea that this is something that can be important to communities of color who are experiencing some of the most dire circumstances around education was just, it was really mind-boggling to me. Uh, the AARP poll, the Connecticut Mirror reported uh, recently, uh, they surveyed 807 registered voters. 34% are uh, saying they're going to cast their ballot for Republican Bob Stefanowski. 33% for Democrat Ned Lamont. 4% for Oz Griebel, who's coming in tomorrow, who's running unaffiliated. And 2% for Libertarian Rod Hanscomb. Uh, when, we, when we see those numbers, uh, again, that's the AARP poll, so right. we know those are consistent voters time and time again. But what about young people, Bilal? You yeah. teach us. Uh, students right. at University of Hartford, uh, a, a candidate like Rod Hanscomb, is he going to appeal yeah. to them? And what's interesting to me is I thought this would have been a great moment for him to really speak to young people. I mean, one of the things we, we know when Rand Paul ran for um, president, that young people were really attracted to some of his views about legalization of marijuana, for example. And, and really, I think 
the issues around drugs in general, but some other kinds of issues that were particularly attractive. And so I thought he would have used this as a platform to really talk a bit more about those kinds of issues. I've sort of wondered about, you know, in a campaign where the likelihood of winning is very, very slim, it would suggest that the approach might be to how you build this movement within the state to build this party up. He mentioned that a lot has changed since he announced, you know, and, and became involved, that the party has grown. He didn't explain how, but I think, you know, part of how that growth would occur would potentially be trying to make the party more attractive to young people. Elizabeth, in terms of the young voters. No, I agree. Um, marijuana always comes up, I think, when you talk to libertarian candidates. I, I will say, again, I'm glad that he was realistic. You know, California um, has legalized marijuana, you know, quite a while ago, and their income revenue has is, is fallen far short of what they expected. So I was grateful to hear him say that that's not a silver bullet. But to your point, Bilal, I was surprised. Um, there are a lot of issues that younger people are passionate about. You know, millennials right now are, are coming out in full force, um, getting involved in the political process. And I didn't hear a lot that maybe would resonate with that group. So that was a bit of a surprise. And you know, what's interesting, just to circle around to communities of color, is that um, one of the things that's interesting to me when you look at Ron Paul and his support for, you know, for uh, reforming our criminal justice system, yet again, there's an opportunity, and he's a libertarian, so there's an opportunity for someone who really wants to rethink our criminal justice system, rethink our drug laws, and how that potentially could be a good way to form a relationship with communities of color. And yet he's dismissive of the idea that, you know, communities of color are, you know, an identity within our society that needs to be sort of talked about. Elizabeth, again, three weeks before uh, Election Day, what will you be looking for in these next few days and weeks from all five candidates? Again, all white men running for the uh, governor in the state of Connecticut. Well, I'll, I'll say one thing that has been interesting in the last week, uh, Led, Ned Lamont has come out and said that he would seek union concessions um, just as a way to tackle some of the fiscal um, issues we have in this state. And I am really interested to see how each of these candidates responds to that and how they engage in that dialogue. And again, what does it look like um, for that you know, spending reform and tax reform in our state? What's been interesting to me is to watch um, as this campaign moves forward, you know, Lamont has put a lot of his own money into this race. um, And Stefanowski has put some of his money, but we are seeing a lot of money come from outside of the state. The Republican Governor Association is spending a lot of money to help Stefanowski, you know, through a, a, a political action committee. Um, and so for me, one of the things I care a lot about is the the role that money plays in our political system. Um, I'm getting the feeling that we're reaching that point now that we probably won't see people who are ordinary people running for governor, that they have to be millionaires and well-connected. And I think that's problematic for our democracy. We've got a minute left, uh, Bilal. What are you hearing from students who are, are going to vote on Tuesday, <laughs> November 6th? Oh, well, who, are, who are they interested I'm in? glad you qualified who are going to vote because, you know, what's interesting to me is that, you know, one of the things we, there's been a push to register student and obviously we've been trying to do that. But, you know, it's, it's really hard when you're in a non-presidential year to get young people to really focus on what's going on. A lot of our students are from out of state and so getting them to focus on what's going on in state is also difficult to do. We're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Bilal Siku, again, Associate Professor of Political Science in Hilliard College at the University of Hartford. Bilal, thank you. 
Go Hawks. And also, Elizabeth Kynes, thank you for coming on, Executive Vice President at Yankee Institute for Public Policy. Elizabeth is a, a newcomer to Connecticut, so we'll, we'll be looking forward to having you back on, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, stay tuned for Where We Live tomorrow. Oz Griebel will be here with us.